welcome back to the Cameron Brooks podcast. Today, we're republishing one of our most downloaded episodes from USMA to infantry officer to Iraq to senior VP of supply chain in Switzerland with Steve Joachim. This episode was originally published in 2016. Steve has since moved companies and is now the vice president of operations at Oryx Additive. After re-listening to this episode, I can see why it's one of our most downloaded. Joel leads Steve through an adventure of a career journey. And I use the word journey with intention. Steve's career has taken him all over the world. You won't want to miss this episode. At the end of his conversation with Joel, Steve shared two pieces of advice. One of them I'll share with you right now. Quote, Always make sure you're keeping your options open and then see where those options lead you, end quote. And you'll have to listen to the episode to capture his second piece of advice. Enjoy the listen. Hi, Steve. Thanks for being on the show and, and I appreciate you being here. Um, as I was sharing with you before we got on uh, the, the this podcast to start recording, um, I've been listening to podcasts for the last few years and when you shared with me your story at your current company Cordis and how you helped turn it around I really wanted to you to share that that experience with uh, other military officers and other people that are out working in the business because I thought it was just a really interesting story so uh, welcome to the show and if you just start off with taking a couple minutes and telling us a little bit about you Okay, thanks, Joel. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me to uh, do this podcast with you, and uh, I am always uh, always available to you know help with Cameron Books, the alumni and candidates, because uh, you know I I am very grateful for the experience that I had, and I'll take uh, I'll take you and and everyone that'll listen to this uh, through that experience. So, uh, so I was an infantry officer uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, when I heard about um, this company that you know is very selective, only takes the best candidates, and you know helps them to transition effectively into corporate America, so I was, in, I was intrigued with that, and I went to um, I went to one of the uh, the sessions, got a chance to listen, and I was I was sold right off the bat. So then I got really nervous. For my interview and uh, got ready and prepped, and obviously was really probably not that prepped very well because I didn't know what I was getting into, and uh, was accepted into the program, and actually got deployed uh, to Iraq right before I was going to go to my conference. And, and so, I have to interrupt you there. I have to interrupt because I was thinking about looking forward to our call today. I remember actually you calling in saying, "I can't come to the conference," which was like in a week. I think you were supposed to come in yeah. a week, and I, know. I can't come to the conference. I am potentially going to be jumping into Iraq. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was inter- it was a, it was it was tough because I didn't get stop loss, so I still had a little bit of a choice. But um, you know, I walked into my commander's office, and I you know we had gotten the notification that we were deploying, and I said, you know, I can't let my my team and my soldiers go to combat without me. So that was a personal decision I made. The Army didn't have me in a, in a hold uh, pattern from that standpoint. So I deployed, 
and continued uh, my development program and reading while I was in, in Iraq and in Kuwait uh, in, in very odd places uh, to really learn more about the business world. And then as soon as I got back, I, um, I, I literally was at a conference three weeks after I redeployed. So, um, and, and from you, there. Yeah, go ahead. Take us through from there through J&J. &J. Okay. So at the conference, I you know interviewed with a lot of you know, outstanding companies, and actually the the company that I ended up going to work for was a company uh, as part of Johnson Johnson Epicon Endosurgery, and it was I was just intrigued by the people, um, the vision of Johnson and Johnson and the credo, and also there was you know quite a few folks um, that had uh, you know were former JMOs and former Cameron Brooks uh, alumni that were part part of the Ethicon Endosurgery leadership. And so I got a chance to you know meet with them and see the different different aspects of that business and um, made a decision uh, over Fourth of July weekend. I didn't realize, you know, that in the business world everybody takes all those days off. So I was having a hard time calling someone to accept the offer, but I finally got a hold of somebody and uh, within Gosh, within a month, within a month, I was uh, on my way to Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, to start as a manufacturing engineer for Ethicon Endosurgery there. I want to interrupt um, you here, Steve. Let's thinking about our um, the people that we partner with that uh, are going to be making decisions, just like you did, um, and which company to go to work for. What advice would you give them about making a decision, which company to start their career with? I, the number one thing that I would say is don't be so concerned about location. Don't be so concerned about, you know, salary and bonus. Really look for a culture. And, and I'm not sure that I was doing that um, exactly, but that's what grabbed me is that I just felt like I fit with that group of people and with that organization. I wasn't really even that sure other than what I got at the career conference and what I got in the interview process exactly what my job was going to be, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of um, you know, the Johnson Johnson family with the Credo and then the group of people that I met at the Conendo surgery were just outstanding. So just make sure that you, you're really focusing on a culture that you feel like you'll be a fit with because, you know, I'll tell you. So I worked for, you know, Ethicon Endosurgery for, you know, 11 years in uh, different roles. So I was a, you know, manufacturing engineer, and then I went into uh, planning, operations planning. So I was a master production scheduler, scheduler in Juarez, Mexico. So I moved down to our um, to El Paso after I was a manufacturing engineer, and actually worked in. Uh, one of our manufacturing facilities there doing planning, which really fit in well with, you know, what a lot of, you know, officers do in the Army is, you know, setting good plans and executing those plans. And then I transitioned, and this is something that's interesting, I didn't really know a lot about research and development and R&D and new product development. And when I was in Juarez, I saw everything stop when the new products were coming into the plant. And I was like, who are those guys? And they said that those are the R&D teams. They're working on the super secret next next big thing. So I was like, wow, I'd like to do that. So I actually took um, you know a few months to research that job the same way that 
that you know we were taught to do as part of the Camera Brooks program is to really understand it. I got a mentor that was you know, working in that group and learned a lot about it. It was definitely for that business. It was a you know a, a tough stretch from a technical capability standpoint. So I was definitely a little nervous about you know the technical expectations of the R&D groups out of our the optometry surgery business, but. I was able to, you know, build some relationships, build some contacts, really get an understanding of what I was getting into. I knew the products well from being a manufacturing engineer and being a, a master production scheduler. So um, I took a double demotion um, to move back um, and to change functions from uh, manufacturing and planning into R&D. Let me ask and you a question, though. You bring up. I want to ask you a question about something. You talk about going to to Juarez in uh, working there, and I have talked with people uh, about the career path at at uh, the this medical device side, J and J Global Surgery, and about a lot of the. You know, if you want to move up, you need to to head down to El Paso slash Juarez. Now, maybe you could take two perspectives here. What was it like? Personally, for your family to live in El Paso, so you work in Juarez, and what, from a from a personal standpoint, I think people think, "Ooh, Juarez, um, gosh, it's Mexico, it's dangerous, it's um, I don't know that I want to go there." Uh, yet, God, I can think of ten alumni that uh, that have that have passed, spent time that that experience catapulted their careers into so many different things within J and J. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. So from a family perspective, I mean, it was it was actually my honeymoon was an, a U-Haul ride from Cincinnati to <laughs> to El Paso. So you're still married wife, today, though, right? You're, you're still married. You're living today, in Switzerland, wife. so this made up for it. That's right. That's right. And California made up for it. So all all good things. So you know, we moved down there. We didn't have any kids at the time. So, you know, we were kind of free to kind of, you know, do a lot of hiking and things like that. So, you know, the weather in El Paso is beautiful. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely different culture in that part of, of America. So you just get a chance to, you know, really, you know, understand, you know, the Mexican-American culture more and, you know, different things. But it was fun. You got a lot of good Texas barbecue. And we were a very, very tight-knit group of um of people that were U.S. based that lived in El Paso that all commuted into uh, Juarez every day, and at and completely one point, safe. oh, I had I had never had one issue. I never saw an issue the entire time that I was there. So that's from a personal life perspective. From a professional life perspective, I will say this. Uh, to everybody that I talk to, I've actually had two mentoring sessions this week with folks that are, you know, hey, what do I do next in my career? And oh, by the way, we have I have this opportunity for people that are willing to do it in my business today is going to Juarez and going to work in the manufacturing facility was by far the most important thing I did in my entire career, bar none, the most important thing. And the reason was is that it's a super fast-paced environment. You're dealing with multiple cultures. I was interfacing with functions that I'd never interfaced with before as a manufacturing engineer out of Cincinnati and 
back when I was in R&D. I didn't really interface um, with those with those functions. And every day had a different crisis. But you also had to be strategic. So you had to look into the future, but you also had to hit that the numbers for that day. And every day was just a different situation. And in a very regulated medical device industry, you know, those situ situations could be actually very dire if not handled appropriately. So I just learned so much. I would say that from a, a personal growth perspective, it was, it was a hard job. I had to learn just so much. And the impact I made on the business was huge. But then the credibility that I built um, with, you know, the leaders in the organization, um, I mean, actually is still, is still with me today. So that was by far the most important thing I ever did was go down there. I'm not saying that it was an easy job. I mean, manufacturing jobs in plants are definitely, you know, high paced. So um, you got to be ready to roll up your sleeves and work very, very hard. Uh, you're not sitting in a cubicle all day long. You're, you're, you're talking to a lot of people. But I think, you know, all the things I learned in the military, all the things I learned as an engineer, I was able to apply all of that but make really big impacts uh, across the business. So Juarez was probably the most important, not only from a growth perspective, but just, uh, you know, I call it with my wife. I tell her, I was like, I, we got so much street credit within the organization by going down there for a few years. That yeah, it's interesting. It's, I think I was going to title this part of the, uh, the I was going to title part of the podcast, catapulting your career by moving to Juarez, then taking a double demotion. Not too many people would put those two together to catapult yeah, but, your career. Yeah, but so that was the thing. And so I moved out of operations where I had, and it was actually a tough decision. So to move into R&D, so it's like, wow, so this is the next move. So moving into R&D into Cincinnati was a whole new leadership team. I had tangentially worked with a lot of these folks as part of the manufacturing team, right? So involved in, in new product launches and things like that, but I'd never directly you know, worked for them. So I had had multiple years, you know, kind of under the umbrella of leaders that I built a lot of, you know, strong relationships with and had a lot of trust with. And so I was stepping into a new organization, albeit still within the same group as well as, you know, taking a double demotion because, you know, I didn't have a master's degree in mechanical engineering. And so, you know, that's kind of what they're, you know, looking for at, you know, at the level I was at, which was at, um, kind of at that, you know, staff principal level uh, within the organization. So I, I came into R&D as a senior engineer and within, you know, a year got my first promotion from an engineering perspective and then was asked to participate in the, the R&D leadership development program um, that Johnson & Johnson had. And it was a program meant to take individual contributors um, and engineers and technical folks and move them into management roles. Well, in the Army, I managed a lot of people, so that I was actually not really worried about that personally. And so I only spent a few months in that program and moved into you know, my first manager role and, you know, was able to launch, um, you know, a new product and, uh, you know, kind of go through that whole process, successfully launch a new product and then work on some front stage uh, development and 
you know, get some products into the pipeline. And from there, I actually would, did, su did such a good job doing that that I was given the opportunity to, uh, to interview uh, for a senior director role within uh, research and development. And, and I, you know, for me, I thought it was a good opportunity to learn, to go through the interview process. I thought I was going to get feedback around, hey, here's what you need to do to get some more experience. Here's some of the things that we look for from a development. So I, I was looking at it as, hey, I'm going to get some really good feedback. They, they thought enough of me to give me an opportunity to interview uh, for, the, for a promotion and to take on a bigger group. And lo and behold, I got the job. And why? Because I probably spent about 40 hours practicing my interviewing skills. And I went through all the stuff that... Um, that I read PCS to Corporate America again, I went through all of my notes, and I practiced my delivery of my accomplishments. So I went into that interview very prepared. And even though I probably was the least experienced person with probably the, you know, probably the weakest resume compared to the other folks that they were looking at, um, I was able to really, you know, show my subjective assets as a leader and, and get the promotion. And one of the things that's unique about your LinkedIn profile, too, that I looked at and I tell people about things that they can do if they get into an organization like this, there's patents with your name on it. Am I right? Yeah. So how does that? I mean, you're not, a, you're not a scientist. You're not a Ph.D. mechanical engineer. How does that work? I mean, you're kind of in this environment, and you get into solving problems. And so we were trying, so most of my patents are in uh, ultrasonics. And so, you know, obviously I do not have an acoustics engineering background. I never, you know, took vibration theory in school. And so I'm working in this and I'm leading groups in this area and we're trying to solve problems. We're, we were trying to figure out how to use ultrasound to cut bones and how do you do that in a way without causing a lot of thermal damage. And so, you know, you know, you know, I, you know, I've been working in engineering. I've been, you know, tied into these products. I understood the procedures and, and the things I was learning and just coming up with ideas and putting them on paper. And, you know, the, the engineering fellows and the people with the PhDs from MIT, they're like, wow, that's a really good idea. Let's uh, detail that out. And so you get involved in the, really that culture of trying to solve problems through technology. And um, there's a, probably a, there's a few more ideas that I have that are going, still going through the process, right? Because the patent world takes a long time uh, to process. And, you know, even coming here uh, in, my, in the current company that I work at, um, Cordis, um, kind of kept that up. And you kind of get a knack for it, solving problems with, uh, you know, with technology. And, you know, and a lot of times there's a really good book called How Breakthroughs Happen. And it's the real whole premise is, is that there's no such thing as a brand new idea. It's just recombination of existing ideas. And so how do you take a problem from, say, a different industry and apply it to the problem that you're dealing with and leveraging that technology? And in doing that, you create something new. So, so how, does a, how does an Army infantry, Army infantry, USMA systems engineer, Steve? Yes. Uh, in systems, like I have a lot of respect for systems engineers, but it's not—it's not mechanical, it's not electrical, it's not—it's—it is—it's like a, like a process improvement methodology type of engineering degree. How do you leverage those two things to 
come up with an idea to use ultrasound, a certain way to use ultrasound to cut bones. How did you do that? Like, how did you play off of those, whether it be your West Point education or West Point leadership training, to the military officer, junior military officer experience? And of course, you had your, your experience out in plants. But how did you leverage that to be this person that is now has multiple patents, uh, name on patents, I'm sure with other people, and to come up with ideas to use, how do we use ultrasound to cut, cut bones? How did you do that? I mean, I think, you know, the first thing is getting into a, every time you go, I would go into a new role, into a new area, I, I go into a very, you know, hyper learning mode. And so, you know, you know, what books do I need to take? What classes do I need to take? So one thing that you won't see, you know, on my LinkedIn profile or, or what have you is that I didn't have a lot of, um, you know, biology classes or biological science classes or organic chemistry in my you know, education at West Point, and then I got an MBA. So um, I actually, when I was a director of R&D in Cincinnati, felt like I really needed to start understanding the human body more. And so I actually enrolled in um, the pre-med program for non-pre-med, non-biology background folks at uh, University of New England and took, I didn't go through the whole program, but I took two biology classes and two organic chemistry classes just to really start getting a stronger foundation and understanding, you know, how the body works. And I was doing this with two kids um, while I was a director with a group of, you know, you know, 40, you know, engineers and engineering managers and an $80 million budget and, uh, you know, also volunteering at our church. And so it was going to, going to, going to classes, you know, online and trying to really understand some things to help me, you know, solve better problems and more important problems um, in that. And at the same time, learning the engineering, the detailed mechanical engineering on the fly. I mean, right now I feel very, very comfortable being able to do, you know, free body diagrams, tolerance stacks, and, you know, dealing with, you know, issues on impedance and heat, um, on, you know, ultrasound, you know, compression medical devices, probably as good as someone that's got a, you know, master's degree in mechanical engineering. And a lot of it is, you know, on the job training. So what I always tell people is that, you know, 70% of your development happens, you know, through your experiences on the job or the projects you work on. 20% is through, you know, mentors and finding people to help guide you. And, you know, at some point in time, I had like five different mentors, people I talked about for different things. And then 10% is training and education. So reading and going out and seeking, you know, the knowledge because, you know, we all have gaps. And, you know, if I hear something that I don't, you know, understand exactly, you know, I'm researching it and trying to figure out, you know, what it is, um, and and how do I how do I pick that up and apply it? So that's one of the things that I always do. And so, you know, you know, getting additional, you don't have to go get a full degree, but there's, you know, I mean, there's tons of tons of you know places you can do um, you know continuing education and you know take classes at a you know local college or what have you to kind of get the skills if you're missing something. So I mean, I did that at you know at the senior director level. Well, considering organic chemistry, when I went to college, I didn't take it, my wife did, is a weed-out class, and uh, most people do not do well in it. I'm curious, what grades did you get in it? 
Um, so I got A's in the biology classes. I got uh, a P, B in the one organic chemistry and a C in the other. But uh, I just had a lot going on in life. But it was kind of funny because I would, I would get up early. I would go into work pretty early in the morning, and I had all the, uh, the models on my desk building the molecules. And so I have, you know, kind of the folks that are, you know, PhDs and, you know, engineering and what have you walking in and being like, what are you doing? <laughs> What's going on in here? And I'm like, I'm, can you explain to me how this uh, hydrogen bond is working in this? And they're like, oh, my goodness. But if you think about a lot of what we do here is, you know, extrusions of polymers. We're doing molding. So, I mean, you know, people that work for me today are PhDs in chemistry. And, um, you know, we're doing drug combo products, right? We're putting drugs on metal to go into the body. And so, I mean, you can't not understand that and be a leader in the organization. So talk, take us, talk, share with us how, the, not, the, the, unless you have anything else to go back with that kind of endosurgery, but yeah. share with us about the, the jump that to take us to Cordis. Why did you make this move to Cordis? Because I think it's an interesting one. Here you go to probably the, my, my perception is you're leaving one of the the top performing companies within Johnson and Johnson, or just the, one of the most well-known healthcare companies, to a company within J and J that is needs to be rebuilt. That's my perception, anyway. But take it yeah, that so it's kind of interesting. yeah, so it's interesting. So um, it's exactly right. So I was actually in the the what we call the energy business. Uh, for Ethicon Endosurgery, which is our ultrasound business, which, I mean, was growing, you know, healthy double digits, very profitable business, had, you know, intellectual property protection. I mean, we definitely had some strong competition from Covidian at the time, but we really were the market leader by a long shot and continuing to uh, grow that business globally. And so, you know, I had been doing that for, you know, you know, a year, two years as a manager, and then, you know, three three or four years as a director, and then as a few years in it as an engineer before that. So I've been doing that for, I think, seven to eight years kind of in that business. And, you know, I, I was getting to the point where, you know, what's going to be the next challenge, but also you know, the, the thing that has to happen is, is that you've got to have kind of a career you know, plan, but it also has to match up with your personal life. And and I said, yeah, I'd be I'd be interested um, at exploring other things. So my my senior management was aware of that. And so I get a phone call on a Sunday afternoon from um, a gentleman named Peter Shen, who's a very senior uh, R and D leader um, in in Johnson and Johnson right now, very well respected. And he actually was you know, one of my managers and directors back when I was a manufacturing engineer 12 years prior to that phone call, okay? And so, you know, he he had, you know, purview and responsibility for the Cordis business, and he said, Steve, you know, I have a interesting opportunity for you, and, and would you be interested in going help turn the Cordis business around and move to California from Ohio? And so um, he actually called me on Sunday, so I had my wife right there, and I said, well, hold on one second. And he knew my wife because I had worked for him, and, and so, but we had been apart for, you know, eight, eight years. 
And so he had been watching my career kind of from afar, but we always had that, that a good positive relationship um, that we had established earlier. And, and I said, sure, we're interested in, in, in looking at that opportunity because I, one, I wanted to do something different. And I knew that from a personal development perspective, you know, there's two things that I hadn't done. I'd never done a startup and I'd never done a turnaround. And if you think about, um, you know, where you get hyper learning experiences, those are two of the biggest ones as well as an international assignment. So I said, I'd be interested in looking at that. And so I, you know, went through kind of the interview process through, um, through Cordis and Johnson and Johnson and, and actually, you know, got the job. Interestingly enough, the company group chairman um, did not actually want to interview me because I did not have 10 to 15 years of cardiovascular experience because I had been working in the surgery world um, for at the kind of endosurgery. And so he really didn't want to interview me, but um, the leadership at Johnson & Johnson R&D told the company group chairman that that's their internal candidate. They did an executive search and found people that met exactly what he wanted from a career background. So I flew to uh, New Jersey from Ohio and, you know, went through, started the interview process there. I prepped for the interview it, very, very hard. And I knew it was a tough challenge going in. And this gentleman um, was known to be a no-nonsense, pretty tough person, period, and a really hard interviewer. And pretty much our interview was an argument. And he was challenging everything on my resume on not, you know, whether it happened or not, but, you know, whether that, you know, really was that big of an accomplishment or um, did I really understand products. So he and I had an hour and a half long argument. I think at one point I leaned forward and don't, don't do this uh, if you're a candidate, is I poked him in his chest and I told him, I said, if you're looking for someone that's, that's, that's going to, do exactly what you ask them to do. I'm not that person. I go, I'm going to take risks. I'm going to do what I think I need to do. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to ask for permission. Um, but the two things I'm going to promise you is that I'm never, you're never going to have to kick me in the butt to get me going. And you might need to pull me back um, with a choke chain if I'm going down a path that you don't like. And so he looked at me, leaned back, crossed his arms, and said, what do you think about California? And um, I'm, you know, finished the interview process, interview with a few more people, you know, the head of HR um, in New Jersey and, and a few others. And I'm back at Newark Airport and I get a phone call um, from Peter Shen, who was the R&D leader who had kind of put me forward for this. And he said, I don't know what you did, but he loves you. And, um, and so then, you know, we moved out to California and were tasked with, um, taking a business that had been a storied innovator that at one point had been, you know, a four billion dollar franchise within Johnson and Johnson had been the Cordis. first Yeah, which is Cordis. Cordis, yeah. Right, Cordis, which uh, specializes in cardiovascular and endovascular devices. So they were first to create and invent the drug eluting stent. They actually were one of the first companies to invent uh, pacemakers and rhythm management. They were the first to create um, really solid and good um, diagnostic and guiding catheters for cardiology procedures, the first to create 
um, self-expanding stents for the arteri arterial beds within the peripheral vascular space. So this is a company that had just a long history of innovation. And what happened was is the company um, got had some strong competition in the drug-eluting stent market, had been focusing on that product because it was a multi-billion dollar product called the Cypher Stent, which pretty much is still, um, drug-eluting stents are still the gold standard for um, coronary artery disease. Um, and what that is, it's a stent that holds open the artery, but it also has drugs that stops the proliferation of the white blood cells that come into, um, you know, kind of create the plaque that, that blocks the, the artery. So it kind of holds it open mechanically, as well as having the drugs to kind of keep the blood flowing and, and not allow a new blockage to form. And so, I mean, this, this revolutionized um, treatment for um, heart attacks and for blockages in the heart where, you know, before you had to have, you know, bypass surgery. Now you could have a little stick in your leg and someone puts a catheter um, through your femoral artery, up through your aorta, into your heart and drops a piece of metal with some drug on it. But this was a multi-billion dollar product for Cordis and they got, they had a lot of competition. They had some, you know, tough situations from a compliance perspective. They didn't do anything, you know, nothing you know, wrong happened, but just around quality system and what have you with the FDA. So the business was really struggling here and, and kind of they lost their competitiveness in that space. So Cordis ended up losing 90% of the market share that they had established. And because of the shelf life that they have for the product and the difficulties of distribution and not having the scale and the leverage from a volume perspective, they started losing money. So Alex Gorski, who's the CEO of Johnson & Johnson now, was head of medical devices at the time, decided and made the decision that we were going to exit drug-eluting stents. So I came in after this. And so the company was contracting from a sales perspective at about a clip of, you know, almost 20% compounded annual rate, right? So not a growth rate, a decline. And year over year. So, you know, a $4 billion franchise, you know, I came in, it was, you know, just north. It was somewhere around a billion dollars um, with where the, you know, international currency was. The other thing why, was is this. Why? Why? Why would you do that? Why would you go to a business that's contracting? They just took the gold standard product away. Done. You'd think that the business is dying, right? This is, it would just took your baby away. Why did you do that? It was um, because it, I felt that there, it, the people in the organization, I felt that, you know, Johnson Johnson still believed in, in the space. And I trusted, you know, the leaders that they were putting in place that I had met through the interview process, as well as the folks that, you know, I had known through my time within Johnson & Johnson. And the fact that, you know, they were, they looked to me to come in and say, you know, can you work with, you know, this team, right? So we had, they had, they brought in a new head of marketing, a new head of uh, global new product development, um, a new company president, and you know, looked at us and said, we need you guys to put together a strategy to save this business. And, you know, so we came in and we called it Project Springboard to springboard the How old are you, the by the way, at this point? How old are you at this what's point? What's that? Not, not, how old are you at that point when you started Cordis? What, 
What's your age? I was probably 37. Yeah, it's still 38. pretty young, don't you think? Where you weren't sitting in the room with a whole bunch of other mid-30s people. Interestingly enough, all of us were, everybody was around, except for, you know, the company group, the, the, the president, who was, you know, probably in his mid-50s. The rest of us were in, I was probably the youngest, but everybody else was probably, you know, 41 and 42 years old. But they all were coming from um, successful businesses within J&J. So the head of marketing uh, came from Biosense Webster. So she was a, a woman that was leading the marketing group of Biosense Webster. She was fantastic. The head of um, global strategic marketing was coming from Asia Pacific marketing um, for Cordis and, you know, was coming from Japan. So he had worked. He was uh, someone that had worked in sales and marketing in Europe and then moved to Japan learned Japanese and worked as a uh, you know, marketing director in Japan, so we had that global view, and he, he came in. And, um, and, and we set to you know, figuring out how to put this strategy together. So it was actually interesting because there was a lot of you know, high potential leaders from Johnson & Johnson that were kind of moving out of successful businesses and or successful regions to come do this together. And so how did you do it? I think you told me a story, um, two things that stood out in the story you told me. One is that you were just like in somebody's basement coming up with product ideas, and that might be an oversimplification. And then you said, hey, I just got on the plane and traveled the world to talk to uh, some of the leaders, surgical leaders, medical people yeah. that were leaders in, in this to get ideas. <laughs> That's what I. This is kind of where I wanted to get to. Eventually, we've had a lot of great stuff, but I want to hear those stories again. Right, right. So, I mean, we, you know, one of the things that that we did is first we put in place. We had to get back out there, so we created what we called like a technology roadshow, where you know those people that I just mentioned, and you know a few of the engineers and you know you know product marketing folks. I mean, we would pack up all the products that Cordis had. And we would, you know, travel to different cities and, you know, meet with the top, you know, physicians in the space. And these are interventional cardiologists, vascular surgeons, and interventional radiologists, and get a feel for what's going on in the industry. What is going on? What problems do you have? You know, what product gaps are there? And then we'd show them everything that we have. And we'd go and do these road shows, you know, around the world, you know, I logged so many miles. I went to every trade show and was locked in what we called an innovation room where I just was interviewing people for, I mean, months we did this. And, you know, so you talk about how do you, I mean, I didn't know anything about cardiovascular disease. I didn't know anything about these products. And so within a, you know, three to four month time period of just eating, drinking, and sleeping it, you know, I really got a strong understanding. And then we had to figure out, okay, what are we going to work on? What are we going to do? So we had to stabilize the existing business. So there were a lot of changes that needed to happen from a commercial perspective. We had to do a lot of things on uh, the profit and loss statement around, you know, our structure and, you know, how are we aligned? Um, you know, how many engineers do we need? How many, you know, all those different things that we'd have to lay out. And so we had to do that because we had to get the business. Not only do we have to get it growing, but we had to get it profitable. And then we had to fill in the pipeline. So this is uh, 
once I got that strong understanding, you know, I was responsible for deciding what we were going to do with the you know multi-million dollar new product development budget that we had. And so myself and the head of um, new product marketing, we, we put put together a process. And you know, we didn't invent it from scratch. So what we did is we said, you know, we looked at you know some different portfolio management processes, and we, what we did was we created you know a group of people, and we said, come up with you know the next product ideas that we need to work on. And you know, people took it all these different views. They looked at epidemiology around you know population math and population health and figuring out, hey, this is the areas that are growing. These are the areas where people are the sickest within cardiovascular disease. We need something here. We had other people that were doing technology pushes with things that they knew. So we came and, you know, between the engineers, the marketers, and then a lot of the physicians that we were working with, um, because as we were going on that journey, you know, I put, I put together, you know, we put together an advisory board. I built relationships, put people on contract to help us, you know, advise us. And we came up with about 75 solid product ideas. And then we had um, Tiger teams take each of those. We kind of did an initial funneling down, and we got down to the 25 top potential projects we could work on for new products. So then we had a Tiger team of finance, marketing, manufacturing, and research and development take each of those ideas and build out a full you know, five-year P&L to create an MPV analysis and a net present value analysis so we could actually start looking at which of these things had the biggest bang for the buck. So we had about 25 of those. And so then uh, myself and Fred, who was the head of the new product uh, marketing group at the time, had to put together our recommendation. So we, of, of those 25, which were the 10 products projects that we wanted to invest in and then we also had to put this together for a board of directors meeting and start selling the idea of this strategy with kind of the overlay of the commercial changes and the commercial strategy for this project springboard on how where were we going to put where were we going to put our bets so it's kind of like we're in Vegas and we're going to put down um, you know money on the blackjack table we needed to figure out where we were going to double down in the space so Fred and I spent you know, about a week working all day long, you know, in the office, and we both lived in the same town here in uh, the Bay Area. And so once uh, once we got our kids to bed, he would come over, and we would, you know, really work on, you know, how do we align these 25 projects, select which ones we want, and align them to the growth strategy and show how we could get the business back to growth by, um, you know, 20 you know, at this point in time, how do we get it back to growth by 2017? And, you know, we went through, put this together. We had to put some guiding principles together around why we chose things, what level of gross profit we were targeting, um, and then we put together a recommendation of, of the pipeline. And were you board of directors? You're presenting to board of directors at J&J, or did Cordis have a board, too? So this was... Um, the Cordis board, but then also the Global Surgery board, so the medical device side. So you think about just one step shy of going all the way up to Alex Gorski and the you know, board of directors. Still a lot of people. Still a lot of, a lot of important people really looking Very at and scrutinizing this. 
Yeah. So there, there was definitely a lot of uh, hallway conversations, uh, us flying from uh, California to New Jersey to talk to uh, key stakeholders uh, and getting our, uh, our plans aligned. But, Where's uh, the guy that was poking, that was arguing with you? Where is he in all of this now? Is he in the picture so, still? So he, at this point in time, is, um, is the president of this company as well as the president of Biosense Webster. And then he gets promoted to what's called company group chairman for our specialty surgery group. So pretty much everything except for Ethicon. So you pre are you presenting any of this to him now? And is he arguing with you again by any chance? Yes, the the entire time. So um, and actually, there there's a room of you know multiple executives, and um, you know it's really a conversation between you know myself and Fred and this gentleman with everybody else there uh, watching and maybe throwing in some comments. But it was really a uh, you know almost a thesis defense on why we felt this was the right strategy against someone that was taking a very devil's advocate approach to looking at it. So we went through um, and presented this with him and got his buy-in and got his alignment and um, and we went to implement the plan. Now we couldn't afford to do everything that we had in the plan so we actually had to put some business cases together to go get some additional funding from the Innovation Fund at Johnson & Johnson. So not only did we you know, put together, you know, the whole plan for Cordis, but we had a shortfall there. So we had to go and present and put together really good business cases that went up to, um, you know, the medical device level leadership on some additional funding we needed, and we were able to secure that funding as well. And we were able to start all those projects. Um, I will say that, you know, everything that we've started has been launched. Um, at some at some point within the world, at some place in the world, those are all on the market today. And we've started, and we've you know we've been through two or three cycles of refilling that pipeline with new products. Now, you know, I, I I'll fast forward when all this is happening um, to November of you know twenty. So we're twenty, you know, November of twenty, you know, fourteen. Um, and that's when, you know, I was made aware that, you know, we were looking, Johnson & Johnson was looking at, you know, you know, we've gotten Cordis profitable. We actually were profitable and we were, we had stopped the contraction of the business. We were launching new products. Some regions were getting to growth. So Europe actually had a, you know, positive growth year. And there were some companies interested in potentially, you know, acquiring Cordis and Johnson & Johnson was, you know, looking at going into some conversations. So myself and those same people that I talked about, um, you know, started doing presentations to, you know, different companies around, you know, you know, the value of Cordis, what our products are, you know, kind of answering questions about the business and putting those presentations together with investment bankers. So I got into really seeing the whole um, L&A side of both Johnson & Johnson, you know, the the big investment firms, investment banking firms, and as well as you know, talking to CEOs of multiple companies and answering their questions about the business. And so you know, went through that whole process. Everything was clean sheeted, so wasn't really able to talk to anybody about it for like nine months. And um, and then you know uh, you know 
Johnson and Johnson uh, went into an agreement with Cardinal Health uh, for Cardinal Health to acquire the Cordis asset. And you know, for me, I was actually super excited about it because you know it was bittersweet because you know I had been with Johnson and Johnson eleven or twelve or somewhere around that eleven or twelve years at the time. You know, it was kind of my whole career outside of um, the military. And, but moving into Cardinal because I really believed in the Cordis business, the people that we had, you know, built this change with. And going into Cardinal Health was a company that really believed in us, wanted to invest in the space, and said they wanted to help us grow the Cordis business. And on the other the other side of it is that healthcare is a very difficult space right now. Everybody can see that with, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act and, you know, the, you know, austerity measures that were happening in Europe. It's just, you know, healthcare expenses are growing at a much faster pace than GDP. It's very complicated. <clears throat> so we, Cardinal's on the right side of that equation because their whole mission is to lower the cost of healthcare so that providers can't focus on the quality of healthcare. So let us solve the problems of cost and you know logistics and the things that are you know holding the hospital leadership back from you know delivering great patient care. So I was excited about that. And so in October of um, October of last year, um, the deal was announced and we went forward and became a part of Cardinal Health. And, um, you know, I had been in an R&D role this, this entire time. I had some responsibility for um, the, you know, some operations engineering assets that were responsible for product changes and new product integration. But the role that um, I'm in now, so I transitioned um, into Cardinal with Cordis. I was actually of the folks that came across with the business um, from J&J. &J. I was the most senior person and the most tenured person on the Cordis leadership team. And so uh, we brought a, a new president on board who actually came from Johnson & Johnson, had a Cordis background before. So. Um, he came across uh, from J&J with us, but he had not been a part of Cordis before that, um, during that whole time period. And um, I was given some additional responsibilities and also asked to move to our new global headquarters for uh, manufacturing and our new European headquarters, which is located in, uh, in Bar, Switzerland, which is right next to the city of Zug, about you know, 30 minutes away from Zurich. And so, you know, picked up the family again, and we moved in March over to Switzerland, and now I'm responsible for um, our global supply chain. So, sourcing of products and components, the planning of, um, you know, what products are we going to sell, what products are we going to make, so working on the sales and operations planning uh, process with all the commercial leaders around the world. Um, making that product or procuring it from, you know, external manufacturers and then distributing it around the world to our business, which is about 75%, you know, outside the United States. At the same time, we are transferring our entire manufacturing operation out of the J&J &J facility. 
And so we have purchased the building about 300 to 500 yards from the J&J building and we just finished all the construction and we've started moving lines over. And these are very highly regulated medical devices. A lot of them are implants. So, you know, we've got to physically move them and then physically move them and then we have to then move to the regulatory filings, which, you know, depending on the complexity of the product can take a lot of time. So we're doing that. At the same time, we're building out a global distribution network because we are still in a lot of cases within the J&J facilities under what's called a transfer service agreement that takes us time to be able to transition out onto our own assets. And Cardinal is a pretty much 99% U.S.-based company, so we're building out the global network that then will be kind of the, the railroad tracks for growing Cardinal globally. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Cardinal is probably the least known uh, Fortune 500 company that's out there. I think um, last year we were, on, we were Fortune 19. And so it's a big company, um, I think bigger from a revenue perspective than Johnson & Johnson and it's primarily U.S. So, you know, Cordis is exciting for them because it gets them into, you know, higher-end medical products which have higher margins than the rest of their business by a tune of like 12 to 15 percent. And then we also have the global reach that they would like to have. And so that's a win-win for them. And then on the Cordis side, you know, it allows us to get into the right side of the conversation with materials managers and hospital procurement staffs around contracting with the larger cardinal business, which is, you know, primarily medical supplies like gloves and drapes and, um, you know, incontinence uh, pads and hot and cold pads. So just a, a different product offering than Johnson & Johnson, but it, it's, it's a win-win for us. And so... You know, a lot, a lot going on right now. We've got to grow the business. Um, our strategy is called Double Up. So we're trying to double the business in the next four years, and we'll do that through you know organic growth, through acquisitions and distribution agreements. So we're very, very active um, on the partnership side and on the um, commercial side, as well as a lot of activity to really align our supply chain and our manufacturing footprint to kind of the, the next evolution for Cordis. All right. So we've talked a ton about business and you're, you just told the great, just an amazing story, especially about turning around Cordis. I want to go to something a little bit fun. How long have you been now living in Switzerland? I have been in Switzerland for almost six months. All right. So what's your favorite experience so far of living in Europe with your family? So my favorite experience, so my kids are uh, six and a half and four and a half, and they're very concerned about their ages, so they know when they when they turn half, and then that's how they, they'll speak to you. So when we first got over there, you know, we've been in California for, you know, three, three-ish years, and so, you know, they really haven't seen snow, and, you know, the, the four-year-old definitely had not seen snow, in, or if, if he did, he didn't remember it. So they talked a lot about snow. So we moved over there, and it was already starting to be kind of springtime. It was the beginning of March, so there was, there was, there was still a chance for snow. So we got there. I took them to uh, what's called Mount Pilatus in uh, Luzerne, and we went up the cable car up Mount Pilatus, 
and they they were talking about they wanted to throw snowballs and see snow and everything like that. So, you know, the second day we got there, got them up up the side of the mountain, and we got to the snow, and you know, my kids were you know being you know from California, did not even have shoes on. They had on sandals and and everything like that, and uh, they were like, Dad, you delivered, and then you know, began to pelt me with ice rocks. But uh, that was probably the, the most fun experience. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's definitely a global role. Um, you know, everyone that I primarily work with is in a different time zone. And so, you know, having to, you know, maintain those connections and those relationships is very important. And then on the personal side for us is, you know, we've been, we've been traveling. So my wife is seeing this as a... Uh, extended vacation. So, you know, every month I'm, we are required to, uh, you know, find a new fun thing to do that we haven't done before, go visit somewhere in Europe. So. And so Steve, last two questions are kind of my, everybody gets asked this. You, you said, you alluded to this in the beginning that you, like 10%, you got to fill in the gaps through your training and education, read books. What's the best book that you've read uh, or would recommend other people to read? Yeah, so I would say, you know, for me, and I actually, this book, I believe, um, I read as part of the development program for Cameron Brooks was um, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that book every um, holiday season. So every, you know, every Christmas break, I read that book because that, at the end of the day, no matter how complex everything is, it's about, you know, working with people. It's about getting things done through people. It's about building relationships and trust with people. And that book just really sang to me about that. And it helped me not only in my, you know, professional life, it helped me be a better, you know, father, it helped me be a better, you know, husband, um, but, you know, definitely a better, you know, partner, you know, at work and a better manager. And so I read that every year. If I have anybody that has any development opportunities or leadership challenges that, you know, on how they're working with people, I actually buy them that book as a gift and, you know, ask them to, you know, let's read this and then we're going to talk about this in our next counseling session. So, so if you get the book of How to Win Friends and Influence People from Steve, you know that you're getting a, a, uh, a write-up in a one-on-one -on -one meeting. Is that it? Absolutely. <laughs> So that's my favorite book. That, you know, that's by far the one, and I read it every year because it, it it's timeless, and you know you always need to you know tweak in some of the details around how you're acting, especially if you're a Type A personality in a high stress environment, because all that's you know all your every you know everything becomes raw and real, and you definitely need to make sure that you're 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 maintaining you know, really good professionalism and really good relationships with people, especially in this tough situation. All right, last question. I'll let you go because I know you got to get back to work. Um, best advice that you've received ever? I don't, and I think you like, you had your dad at the conference with you. I know you know yeah. Roger Cameron. You played lacrosse. I, anytime. You've been nine years old. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I, so I'll give two, and I'm going to have to give two. So my best advice, you know, from my father was it's good to have options. Don't shut down doors. Always make sure you're keeping your options open, and then you kind of see what those options kind of lead you to. So if anybody ever asks me, 
um, hey, would you be interested in this or you know anything from from those types of things? I never shut the door. My answer is always yes or that's interesting. So you know if I'm not sure, I have to go like think about it or talk to my wife about it. But that would be kind of keep your options open. The next advice I actually learned from a gentleman named Randy McElroy, who is a I believe he went through Camera Brooks many, many, many years ago. Um, he was one of my mentors at Johnson and Johnson, and you know his advice was you know really good because he said you know everybody has all these career aspirations and these career goals, but you also have you know a personal life. And he said what you need to do is lay out you know your family goals, your personal life goals, and then lay out your career goals and make sure that they're not incongruent. So, you know, if you're saying, hey, I'm mobile, and, you know, your business leader comes to you and says, hey, I have an opportunity for you in Switzerland, and then you say, well, I, I didn't really mean that I was mobile. I said that I would, yeah, we're mobile, but we'll only move, you know, to California or Ohio. That's not mobile, right? So, you know, making sure that you've discussed it with your, your family, discussed it with, you know, your spouse or significant other to say, hey, are we mobile? Are we not? When are we mobile? and doing those things. So for us, right, our kids are still little. And we homeschool our kids too. So we have the ability to be very, very flexible in where we are. But in a couple years, our kids are going to be a little older. And so, you know, at that point, they're going to want to, you know, be a little stable. So, you know, we're in a window of opportunity where we can actually do these things, move to California, move to Switzerland. But, you know, five years from now, we'll probably have to lock down for, you know, a few years to get the kids through, you know, high school and, you know, get them off to college. So, you know, you kind of make sure that, you know, what, you, what you're going to do from your career, you know, lines up with your personal life. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if they are not matched up, you're either going to, you're going to cause a lot of personal stress, keeping everything balanced together. And you're going to let some people down on either side of that equation. And you definitely don't want to let your family down. And, you know, on the converse, you can't let down your, your business leaders very often or they, you know, stop asking you for things. So I think uh, that from Randy was a great, great advice. And, you know, I, my first move to El Paso, I didn't really discuss it that much with my wife because we had just gotten engaged and I didn't really think I was going to get the job when I interviewed for it and I got it. And then I had to tell her that we were moving to El Paso right after our wedding. <laughs> and so, so I never made that mistake again. So uh, we making sure that, you know, keeping the personal life and the work life, if it's not, I wouldn't say balanced, but at least making sure that everybody's clear on, you know, you know, what you would do and what you wouldn't do. Hey, Steve, you have been phenomenal. I've really enjoyed it. I knew I would hearing the story all over again and some things I learned, didn't know. And I specifically loved the advice that you've received um, keeping options open, saying yes or that's interesting and thinking about it things. And especially things like professional goals and and personal goals, keeping them congruent. I think we all can think through those things. And, I, and, and uh, somebody that's just a little bit older you, with you than you and has older children, boy, you're going to keep crossing that bridge of making sure that you know, your personal and professional decisions are congruent with one another. The other piece I just really love that, that you talked about today is, is um, this 70% um, getting the right developmental experience, 20% mentors, 10% training and education. What I really liked about that, and you subtly said, but I'm going to be more overt now, you 
as an individual are responsible for your own professional development. Somebody's not going to come to you and say, hey, we want you to be ABC. Even though somebody did call you on a Sunday afternoon, you put yourself in a position position for that. So thank you. Thanks so much for being the guest today. And um, I'm going to have you back sometime because I know you're going to have more stories to tell. All right, Joel. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to Steve's story. If you do enjoy listening to our podcast, we'd love for you to share the love by rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. Additionally, you'll notice that we've recently rebranded our podcast from the Above and Beyond podcast to PCS to Corporate America. After years of alumni interviews and transition strategy tips, we took a moment to step back and reflect. The content of this podcast is to help educate junior military officers about their transition options and inspire veterans to transform their lives and their careers so they can make the most of their PCS to corporate America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Hope Nunnally. Make it a great day.